You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware. Friends, I could not be more thrilled to bring you the conversation that is coming your way in this episode. As you know, we have decided to launch this podcast with a series of historical episodes looking primarily at Democrats in the 21st century when it comes to faith. Now, this is not because of uh, favoritism for uh, Democrats. This is because Democrats have a live primary and so far Republicans do not. And so the conversation early in this podcast is going to uh, really focus on Democrats and themes in the Democratic Party. There will be more than enough time to look at how faith is developing on the Republican side of things. But for now, we're talking Democrats. And in the first two episodes of this podcast, we talked with Amy Sullivan. And that conversation was so rich and uh, so worthwhile that we split it up into two episodes talking about 2004 and talking about the Democratic faith resurgence. You know, if we're going to be maybe a little hyperbolic, in 2006, it was certainly a resurgence for the party overall, taking back Congress. And sort of concurrently with all of this is Barack Obama. Barack Obama launched to the national stage at his 2004 convention speech in 2006. Uh, he gave a notable uh, speech on faith and public life, which we'll talk about uh, with our guest. And let me just get right to it. There is no one better to have this conversation with than Joshua Dubois. I've known Joshua for over a decade now. Joshua, for those who are not familiar, Joshua worked in then-Senator Obama's Senate office. He ran religious affairs for President Obama's first presidential campaign in 2008. He ran religious affairs for the presidential inaugural he was selected by President Obama to serve as special assistant to the president and uh, executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, where he served for the president's first term. Uh, he is also the founder and CEO of Values Partnerships. Uh, he is the founder of a company called Gage, which I think you'll be hearing quite a bit about uh, in 2019 and 2020. And he is the author of uh, the President's Devotional, which is a collection of devotionals that inspired President Obama. I, I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. I know I did. I hope that what you'll really process is the broad view that Joshua brought to faith outreach that really considered the benefits of faith outreach from multiple angles. And as you'll hear from Joshua, even the multiple benefits of singular tactics or just one kind of event or one kind of speech, you're going to be educated uh, in, in this conversation with Joshua. I was educated too, although I'll note uh, I've had over a decade of of listening to Joshua, and Joshua educated me on quite a bit. And so it, it is just going to be wonderful to share this conversation with you. Without further ado, here is Joshua Dubois. This is the Faith in 2020 podcast, and I could not be more thrilled to have a guest with me than my friend, longtime friend, Joshua Dubois. Joshua, welcome. 
Thanks so much for having me, Michael. This is a joy, man. This is fun. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm, uh, you know, it's been, uh, I think uh, I've been looking forward to reliving some memories and talking <laughs> about the excellent work that, uh, it, I mean, it's more than a decade ago now, man. Like, where Dude, did time go? 2007, right? I mean, when it, when it really kind of got rolling. Isn't that wild? 12 years? Crazy. Yeah. But, uh, where where I want to start, Joshua, is is actually going back a little bit earlier, yeah. uh, and I know this was pivotal in both your life and mine, which was part of why 2008 was able to be so successful. Was that then Senator Obama didn't just start talking about faith when he you know was was uh, running for president? It was something that was important to him and his biography in his time as a U.S. senator and even before he got elected. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of his DNC convention speech. Do you mind talking about how that set him up for some of the work you were able to do with him on his 2008 campaign and also just what it meant in your life, how yeah. that started a journey, you know, on, on your end? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I would almost put two markers, both of which you're you're very familiar with, both that 2004 speech and then call to renewal in 2006 as kind of mm-hmm. those like pivotal early moments. So, and you know, Michael, you know this story well, but for your listeners, I, um, I was wrapping up grad school in 2004, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And it was either going to be moving in more of a policy direction. I was getting a master's in public affairs and um, was thinking about working on the Hill or moving in more of a ministry direction. I'd, I'd been an associate pastor at a small church in undergrad and you know, obviously my, my Christian faith is sort of the center of my life and was trying to figure out how to potentially, you know, go in one direction or another or combine the two. And to make a long story short, was um, was doing an internship in, in Washington, D.C. and um, went to grab a burger one day after work and, and saw this guy with this odd name, Barack Obama, <laughs> you know, then <laughs> state senator, hadn't been elected to the U.S. Senate yet, of course, giving this amazing speech. Um talked about, you know, all sorts of policies that I agreed with and just loved his overall bridge building tone. And then out of nowhere, he started talking about the the, um, the awesome God that we serve, even in the blue states. And, you know, that rocketed me back to Fellowship of Christian Athletes camps, you know, singing our God is an awesome God. And, you know, I just thought, man, this, this is, I, I didn't know that much about him at the time, but thought that this was a guy who you know, who, who might be able to, to, to break through a progressive who also cares about his values. And so long story short, um, kind of hunted the young senator down and um, got got brushed aside on a couple interviews, but finally made my way to a Senate office um, and started working with him in early 2005. Um, and then, you know, came a big moment of a faith speech in 2006. So I'll, I'll pause there. But um, but, yeah, those were kind of the, the early days. Yeah. And for all the political, you know, trash that gets introduced to our political rhetoric and culture, a lot of this does come from convention speeches. You know, it was Barack Obama who, in a significant way, entered my brother's keeper into the political lexicon, which yeah. is a great thing to have, you know, at the at the center of our political discussion. So, uh, you know, that, that meant a lot. Now, Joshua, you referenced this 2006 speech and uh Right. My, my understanding is, you know, it was it was one of those hand raising moments where people were like, you know, who in the office cares about faith and can work yeah. with. Yeah. To, to tell that story. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was working on I was writing constituent letters and then I was backing up um, the senior L.A. Um, for labor and commerce and trade issues. So nothing, nothing having an immigration suit, so nothing <laughs> having to do with faith. Um, but at the end of 2005, Senator Obama 
was writing a book um, and was uh, one of the chapters was on, was on his faith. And he wanted to not only complete the chapter in his book, but also do a, a speech um, that uh, sort of articulated not only his own faith journey as a Christian, but also um, the, how he saw the intersection of faith and public life. And he kind of asked if anybody was interested in this stuff. And I, I looked around and nobody more senior, and there are a lot of more senior people in the office, but no, nobody more senior than me had their hands raised. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. You know, um, I yeah, obviously cared a lot about both, you know, my own uh, personal faith, but also the intersection of, of faith in the world around us. And so both worked with him on that speech. Um, uh, also, you know, in the process of creating that speech, we invited a bunch of faith leaders and um, and to, to, you know, just kind of share their views on mm-hmm. how religion should, um, should interact with the world ar- around it. And, um, and then, you know, he delivered a, what was, I think, an awesome address, um, you know, the, uh, which is a really nice validation after the speech um, that uh, E.J. Dion wrote in the Post, a, a column on it, and called it the most important speech by a Democrat on, on faith since John F. Kennedy talked about his relationship with the Vatican. And um, so that was kind of a launching moment. I, I should say, though, I mean, it, not a lot of people read it or heard about it, right? So <laughs> it was at Jim Wallace's call to renewal conference. And so that's obviously a bit uh, significant network. And so folks in that network knew. Um, and then we mailed it out to pastors around the country. But still to this day, you know, that it's kind of an inside baseball speech, but it really kind of helped um, set the tone and define the parameters of, you know, this young leader's notion of how faith should um, should interact with the world. Yeah, we'll we'll provide a link to that speech, and I, I really would recommend reading it. I'll just say for listeners, I saw that speech and heard that speech at a time when I was a relatively new Christian and just kind of coming to terms with um, the the role of faith in public life and how faith was often perceived in political conversations. And then sort of out of nowhere, this young, new, fresh face, clearly he was going to be a leader of the Democratic Party, laying out this relatively fulsome, comprehensive, positive vision for the role that faith could play in politics. And it was just like, oh, well, maybe this is what faith in 21st century American public life could look like. Like maybe it doesn't have to be endless culture wars. Maybe it doesn't have to be endless animosity. Maybe, maybe it could be positive. Maybe it could be uniting. Uh, And and that was, that was really moving to me. Uh, So Joshua, you're in the, you're in the Senate office. You have this burgeoning sort of relationship and, and role and portfolio now in part due to the call to renewal speech. At what point did you move over to the campaign and how did that happen and kind of what what was the mandate you were given? Yeah. So in like November or December of 2006, so before he announced, I, I wrote this memo at the request of Pete Rouse. And let me just say for legal purposes, I did it on my own time. <laughs> and, and, um, but um, but did, did it on my own time and just basically said that if he was to run, here is how I think we should engage communities of faith on the campaign. And both from like an overall messaging perspective and one, just making the case that the engagement was important and two, you know, what the message should be, but three, just kind of the practical on the ground aspects of this. You know, I felt like it was something that we shouldn't be ashamed of, that we should make this case to communities of faith. And that doesn't mean we're electioneering in pulpits or, you know, doing things the way that following some of the more unfortunate templates that had been out there before. But it does mean, for example, 
they're United Church of Christ uh, members in Iowa, and the senator comes from a UCC background, then we should talk about those shared values. If there are um, black church leaders, pastors, and lay leaders in South Carolina who care deeply about everything from faith in public life to criminal justice reform, then we should root our message to them in the language of faith and, and just basically making the point um, that Michael, and I'm sure we'll get to this, that, that you really helped me make so well that faith can be um, a positive and constructive asset in the, in the context of our political dialogue. It doesn't either have to be something that is exploited or something that's ignored. And so wrote that memo um, in, I think it was like November or December, got it through Pete, then got it to the, to the senator, again, separate from his, um, his, his policy role and more kind of in his own time as he, could, he was considering his political options. And thank God they gave me a shot. There was, you know, lots of reasons not to really young and relatively inexperienced, but, um, they, you know, they, they, um, they said that I could, you know, come on and, and lead this, uh, this department on the campaign. I mean, there's going to be a book written somewhere with the title, Thank God for Pete Rouse. I mean, <laughs> exactly. he's just played that role for yeah. so many yeah. folks and making sure people are in the right positions. Uh, so we're we're grateful to Pete. Uh, Absolutely. So, Joshua, you touched on, like, it's really not all that mystifying. Uh, I think sometimes when, when folks are talking about faith outreach, they act like it's this outrageous or like mystifying thing, but... It's really just basic political outreach. You meet people where they are. You learn about them and their values. You make connections between their values and those of your candidate. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes I get the sense that it needs to be put in those terms for folks to understand it. Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, you didn't necessarily arrive to the campaign with an established, proven playbook for what Democratic faith outreach looked like for some of the reasons we talked about with Amy Sullivan on the last uh, set of episodes and, and how that worked on the Kerry campaign. And so how did you develop that? And what were the, some of the key components of what you thought a successful faith outreach operation would look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the key components were named uh, Max Timken and Michael Weir and Shannon. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> no, I'll I'll uh, I'll explain for folks who don't know what I'm talking about. So, um, so one, I mean, I, I, there there was kind of an ideation process, just sort of thinking big about what's possible here. But two, we had to really rapidly pull together a team, um, and you know, we didn't have a ton of resources, and so grateful that um, just some amazing folks came around pretty quickly. Michael, I don't know if you shared this story in the podcast, and I'm, I'm sure you will at some point if you haven't, but you know, you and I ran into each other, I think it was at the DNC winter meeting, was that like late 2006 or something, and you know, you came on board a while after that, after your own sort of uh, exercise and persistence, um, and you know, one of the best moves that, you know, that the young senator and certainly I have ever made and, exactly you know, right. just to kind of help us articulate some of these principles. And, you know, Max Timken, um, who um, <laughs> went on to be the founder of um, what's the game? It's a really popular um, Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity. And so oh gosh, created, I didn't know that. <laughs> he's the creator of Cards Against Humanity. But prior to that, he was he helped us design an awesome sort of visual presence for faith outreach. So, mm. you know, just in the same way that you want to be proud of your candidate with a logo and with slogans, we did that for communities of faith, people yes. of faith for Barack Obama and yes. so forth. And, and Shannon did a tremendous job sort of helping us curate some of this. And then we established points of contact for the faith community in early stages. And so there was someone in South Carolina that I could work with to organize 40 days of faith and family and where we mm. would go uh, 
and um, and host these faith forums where communities of faith would come together across denominational lines and talk about their shared values. And we do the same thing in New Hampshire with our point of contact there. In Iowa, we would do the same. And Michael, I know you, you did a fair amount of work in that state as well. You know, hosting these conversations about um, how the values of this person who's running for office connect with the values of those who, you know, who are considering to, um, voting for them. And so you're right. It, it wasn't rocket science, but you had to put an infrastructure in place. You had to take it seriously. You had to measure your results. And and that's together, you know, with you and with others, That that's what we did. Yeah. Now, I just want to drill down a bit here and just kind of go through some some various states and demographics yeah. just to just to break this out for folks. Uh, you know, one thing, Josh, and I don't know if you'd agree, it would just kind of raise the question with you. But one of the big differences between what made Barack Obama's faith outreach to the black church successful as compared to how it had been done in the past, and unfortunately, how we see it sometimes today, is Barack Obama viewed the black church as more than just a, a, a depot where you could reach black folks. He actually took the black church experience seriously and he took black Christians faith seriously. And so, I mean, you mentioned 40 days of uh, uh, faith and family. Well, well, that was, that was, that was not just, that, that was directed towards the black church specifically. We, we met with pastors and really asked them what was of concern to them as Christian leaders, not just as black folks who happen to be in a collar. Walk us through South, South Carolina was such a pivotal state for then Senator Obama. Walk us through what uh, what black church outreach looked like and how you tried as a PK son of uh, AME, uh, how you tried to make sure that the black church outreach was respectful and in tune with the community. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, um, and both in terms of the, the black church um, in a in a vacuum, but also how that community connected to other religious communities. So first off, we just started early. You know, this wasn't something that we did two weeks before a primary campaign or, you know, certainly before the general. And that's, you know, that's one of the flaws that you often see in this type of outreach. And two, I mean, we, we seriously engaged people on what their priorities were. And so, you know, the, we would sit down with pastors and with lay leaders and first ladies and others and, and ask them what's most important in their community and then write reports where we would send that back up to campaign leadership and to policy leadership and so forth. And then we invested, you know, the, the, the candidate's time, which is, you know, as anyone who's worked on political campaigns, campaigns knows is probably the most precious commodity. And so one of the, you know, one of these other little known speeches is he went to the Hampton University Ministers Conference, the largest gathering mm. of black pastors in the country um, in 2007 and get, gave a major speech there. He went to the AME General Conference um, in 2008 and, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. He, he spent time meeting pastors where they were. Now that was, it was important for the black church community, but also important because we were forging connections between the black church and other communities. And so mm. for example, um, one of the only, and this it's sad to say that this was the case in 2007 and eight, but one of the only integrated spaces, many, even progressive Democrats found themselves in was an Obama faith forum mm. um, because they went to church and, and uh, churches that were either largely white or largely black for the most part. Um, it, but when they, when we convened these forums, you would see black church leaders, you would see white Catholics, you would see white uh, mainline Protestants and progressive evangelicals kind of coming together 
in this in this one space. And we saw that in Iowa too. You know, the Black Church was really important there. Rogers Kirk and Democrat and uh, and Davenport and all the folks in Waterloo. Yeah. Um, but when we convene these forums, especially in Iowa and New Hampshire, even more so than South Carolina, you know, you would have the progressive Jewish community there. You would have folks from the local mosque there. And so they looked around and saw that there was a coalition that was broader than even, um, you know, the, the, the space where they were coming from. And so that was important. Yeah. The last thing I'll note is that, you know, as you know, we did a lot of outreach to evangelical communities, particularly younger evangelicals, me and you and Don Miller riding around Michigan and so forth. Um, Joel Hunter and the tremendous um, uh, amount, his, his partnership and friendship meant, um, and, and many others, you know, working uh, on articles um, in Christianity Today um, in, uh, that, that, you know, where Senator Obama contributed to. Um, but it was outreach and validation from black church leaders that could actually bring in white evangelicals, right? Meaning like Hmm. um, when, you know, if, if the pastor at Brooklyn Baptist in South Carolina was all in on Barack Obama, which he was, then first Baptist South Carolina was going to make notice of that. Right. So that, and so, um, you know, that it was a key bridge uh, between the black church and other religious communities. Oh, that, that's just so helpful. Uh, I, there are so many pieces of that I want to pull out, uh, but I'm afraid we, we want to have time. But I do just want to point out for listeners to just compare that last two, two and a half minutes of what Joshua said to what we heard in the last episodes about the Kerry campaign. He mentioned his ability to take feedback from the faith community and send it up the chain in the campaign. He mentioned the ability to uh, get the president's precious time or the the candidate's precious time when needed and when it was strategic and that requests for the president's time were able to be taken seriously enough. And that's just also important. Um, Joshua, I've been talking to folks and, you know, sticking kind of in the, in the primary context, there's been a sort of uh, question about Oh, well, Democrats really don't need to do faith outreach in the primary. That can be sort of a messaging focused thing once we get into the general election. You just laid out some some significant ways, black church, mainline Protestants, the fact that the Democratic Party is two thirds religious. And so if you're not doing faith outreach during the primary, you're leaving unavailed important ways to reach two thirds of the electorate. Um, But can you just speak to specifically in the primary before we get to the general is there anything else you want to say about the value that you saw faith outreach playing in in helping then Senator Obama win win that primary over over some serious candidates? Yeah, I mean, it it was just I, I would say a no brainer, but if if it's a no brainer, then more people would be doing it. But I, I mean, meaning like it's, you know, it why would why would one not if reach out to a United Methodist church goer in Iowa? who cares deeply about her faith, right? And and, right. and is making her decision in a democratic primary somewhat on the basis of shared values with the candidate. Hmm. Um, maybe this person subscribes to Sojourners, right? Or maybe they, you know, um, they, um, they attend um, a progressive faith-based conference every year. Or, yeah. you know, it's a progressive Catholic who really wants to um, – you know that that cares deeply about human life, but has a broad definition of of that. Where and they don't see they certainly don't see Republicans um, addressing 
um, some of the you know the the poverty and social justice aspects Seamless of that. garment stuff. Yeah, yeah, but they also don't see progressive candidates speaking to these issues as well. Then what? Mm. Why why not go after that person? There's just a lot of people. Why not go after that the black church goer in South Carolina who is tired of people showing up two weeks before the primary? Yeah. If you have a presence um, in that person's space. Um, earlier on, then you're going to be that much more likely. And so there's just very little downside. I think the downside that people think is that it then they feel like it pulls you into all of the messy debates about sort of social issues in, um, in the country today. And I, it does, I mean, as you, as you'll know, Michael, that, that, you know, 90% of our work was not about sort of big picture messaging. It was about grassroots outreach. That's and right. even if you are, uh, you're concerned with and don't know how you're going to handle some of the broader messaging topics, you should still implement the process of just reaching out to people. Um, and, yeah. and you can figure some of the, the other stuff out as you go. Yeah, that's great. So June, uh, the, the nomination is basically wrapped up and in a high rise building in Chicago, the designated nominee or soon to be designated nominee, Barack Obama, meets with 30 moderate and conservative evangelicals. And just two months after that, he'd go to Saddleback in what was outside of the debates in the Al Smith dinner, I believe the only time when the two candidates appeared, both John McCain and Barack Obama appeared on a stage together, was at Rick Warren's church. Can you talk about sort of why you thought and why uh, why Barack Obama thought it was important to be doing that outreach and sort of what it was like navigating the internal process to sort of sort of get ready for those moments <laughs> and and, uh, and and do them well? Yeah, um, man, the, the evangelical meeting was one of the little you know, told stories, but so important and helpful, but also kind of showed my, my, uh, my greenness in some way. So super proud of the work we all did to pull that together. And Michael, as you remember, like, look at a, like, that was a remarkable room, you know, for, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's insane to think about, you know, T.D. Jakes and Franklin Graham. And I mean, just, it was, it was the religious on either side of him. I mean, it was it was, it was TD Jakes, Barack we, Obama, I mean, Franklin Graham. <laughs> we did that, brother. We brought them in, and 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 it made a ton, it, it it had a huge impact because some folks may have supported him, but others were just going to be that much less likely to, to bash him, and and it created. It, I think the a large part of the progress that we made, not just from that meeting, but the preparation before and then execution sure. afterwards, contributed to that. A funny aspect of that was. This, this shows you how much I, I knew about cam, uh, campaign politics at that point. So a lot of the folks in that room um, wanted to come on a – not I, I gave them the ability to keep their attendance relatively confidential. Now, obviously, it was probably going to get out in some way, but we weren't going to be blaring it from the rooftop that this was happening. Right. I saw yep. this as largely about building relationships with some of the most influential people in the country. Um, I guess me and the press folks had not really talked that through because they're like, <laughs> we can't do a release with all these people. I'm like, I'm sorry, you can't. I mean, so yeah. it leaked out in some ways who was there. That's fine. But they were a lot of folks inside were like mad at me that like I, we could not do a press release like touting all the folks that were there. But that was the condition of having a strong relationship with them moving right. forward. And so that um, so that was kind of funny. And then Saddleback was was. 
um, was was pretty cool. Um, the uh, the whole cone of silence thing. Um, oh. I thought you know it, it, it made it sort of an interesting moment. The one no, funny thing about that is on the way over, I just remember Senator Obama quizzing me, you know, on verbatim the the Ten Commandments, and then clowning me because I didn't know them exactly right. From the <laughs> <answer> <laughs> <again>. <laughs> so, so that was kind of fun too. But yeah, no, those are those are definitely some interesting moments. Saddleback was less of a lift than um, than the evangelical meeting in terms of getting it onto the schedule. Folks, I think, saw the kind of inherent value in the Saddleback conversation, and I think McCain had confirmed, and so, you know, lots of different dynamics there. Uh, um, yeah. But um, but the evangelical thing was was definitely a miracle <laughs> that actually got on the schedule, but I think most folks were, were glad that it did. We spent a lot of time talking with Amy Sullivan about- My buddy, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a great friend and does some deep thinking on this stuff. And we talked about Catholics in 2004 mm-hmm. and Wafergate. Not only did you have, were you able to bring on Catholic staff doing Catholic outreach onto the 2008 campaign, but also some other very interesting sort of uh, things were put in place, not just defensively to sort of pr- protect, uh, obviously, but Barack Obama's not Catholic, so we didn't have to worry about Wafergate so much. But how much were you thinking of how critical that was in 2004? Or was was the Catholic outreach that was, happened on 2008 just a, a, you know, a piece of the broader, you know, faith outreach effort, you know, as you saw, it had to, had to happen? Yeah, well, in this case, again, we had the benefit of some really wise friends that had been thinking about this stuff um, and had had some unfortunate experiences before who could, who could help us learn from them. So, you know, Mara Vanderslice Kelly and John Kelly and Alexia Kelly, there's a lot of Kellys that <laughs> in this case, but, um, and so Mara's work and with Matthew 25 and John at the DNC, um, Alexia at the time was Catholic and Alliance for the Common Good, James mm. Fald and Chris Corzin. Like these folks had been down this path. We had, I'd met with them even before moving to Chicago. Um, and, you know, so we're meeting in D.C., learning from right. what happened in 04, thinking about the structure, infrastructure we needed in in 2008. And so they really helped to navigate this. And there was the broader messaging stuff. We didn't have to, as you mentioned, deal with as much of the direct communion conflict because the president, um, then senator, wasn't Catholic, of course. Um, but, you know, we had to do things like, for example, have local volunteers on the lookout for the flyers that inevitably appear after mass, you know, saying that, the, right. that Barack Obama's a baby killer and so forth. And so, you know, we had teams that were out there like actively seeking to respond to these concerns. We, we were, one of the key things was we did not see, um, it wasn't like a category for supporters of uh, Barack Obama and the uh, mainstream supporters and then separately faith supporters. We knew mm. that in a state like Ohio, for example, a lot of the people that were just his supporters were also very likely to, to go to somebody's church or, or attend Mac right. or what have you. And so the campaign would allow us, for example, to send talking points about abortion and about other tough issues out to you know supporters in a heavily Catholic community outside of Cincinnati, for example. And, and so empowering people with, um, with the message, r- again, rooted in reality. It's not just talking points. This is the authentic reality of, of, of who this man was and is, um, empowering them to, to go out and push back on some of the nonsense that was out there. So, so yeah, I mean, bottom line is there were a lot of smart people that I was able to tap into for that, um, and that helped us implement a strategy. Yeah, great. Sort of the last sort of question on different faith groups and and the primary Muslim outreach became uh, a more central 
in 2008. A big part of that was the Muslim vote was perceived, and I think accurately, to be really critical in the 2006 Senate election in Virginia. Uh, we knew that there were sizable Muslim populations in places like Michigan, Minnesota, Florida. Um, and so how did you think, not just about Muslim outreach, but but about minority faith outreach and, and how it fit under the picture, how central it was, especially for a Democratic campaign to to make clear that uh, that there was you know room for everyone at the table? Yeah, no, it was hugely important. One, in this case, you know, a lot of the faith outreach was not about signaling. It was about, you know, the actual electoral gains and the and the message. But in this case, we all thought from Senator Obama on down that it was important to send the message that Muslim Americans are Americans too, and they deserve to be engaged like any other constituency, and you shouldn't run from them in the course of your outreach. And so that, that was a big part of it was just like, you know, particularly because he had to clarify his faith because of his name. But the flip side of that was we had to send the message that no, he he's not a Muslim American himself. You know, he's a Christian, but there's nothing wrong with being a Muslim in in America. And and so part of the outreach was to show that listen, the, the these folks are a part of our community just like anybody else. But then there were practical ramifications, as, as you mentioned. I think the oldest mosque in the country was in Iowa, and so forming that mm. connection was important. The first time I met Keith Ellison was in a faith forum in in Minnesota, I believe. Um, as you mentioned, wow. you know, Northern Virginia has a significant Muslim American population, the Adam Center, Imam Majid, and, and, and others there, um, and so on and so forth. Wisconsin has a pretty significant population, too. And so, mm-hmm. you know, part of it was meeting people where they were, meeting voters where they were, and, and reaching out to them. Um, so that was a big part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, Joshua, we're just about to wrap up. Uh, you, you know, obviously, we know how 2008 turned out. Well, what I want to give you, uh, we're, we're keeping these episodes Primarily historical, but but since I have you on the show, yeah. I, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, what are the the lessons you learned through that experience in 2008? And obviously, you went on to serve the president in the White House, where you were able to carry through on so much of sort of the the campaign promise of 2008, including you know making sure that. Uh, faith-based advisory council was set up that was inclusive and diverse and included uh, various voices, including those of uh, folks who probably didn't support the president uh, and many of the policy accomplishments. And maybe that'll be for another another episode. Uh, but but what are the lessons for 2020? You know, when yeah. you think about 2008, uh, Barack Obama is the last winning Democratic candidate and faith outreach was a robust part of his campaigns. What message uh, do you have for, for 2020 candidates and, and pe- folks thinking about this upcoming presidential election? Yeah, you know, I'd say it's probably a message for candidates, but also for the for reasonable folks in the faith community that want to see something different, too. I think there's got to be a message for, for, for us, and I would consider, mm. consider myself as a part of that, that group, too. So one, just the, the outreach itself matters. Implement it's a simple thing, but just you know, go out there and talk to people. You, you were hugely successful at this in 2012. Um, you know, obviously, I think a lot of tremendous work happened in, in 2008. Um, but, you know, we've got to keep pushing because Democrats seem to think that there is a level of, you know, complexity or intensity that, that just doesn't really exist. And so 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 do it, um, you know, be mindful of um, 
just the, the possibilities here. There's so many folks mm. who are hungry for a different conversation. I mean, Michael, as you know, more than anyone, and literally I, I take a lot of my cues on and, and thinking on this from you and your writing and work, you know, there are lots of folks, even among evangelicals and, you know, moderate to somewhat conservative Christian, maybe not far right, but, but somewhere in the middle that, you know, would be desperate for a candidate who, even a pro-choice candidate who, you know, understands the underlying moral components of a question like mm. abortion, right? Or, um, you know, someone, even a, a candidate, uh, and hopefully, in, in my view, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's who does robust support for LGBTQ equality, but if you can understand, um, you know, the range of views that are out there in, in the country, and, and you can at least speak to those range of views, then there are lots of folks that I think would be open to you. Now, Right now, I think Democrats have just kind of seeded a lot of this conversation in territory. And there are lots of Christians out there that are looking for a home. Um, and, you know, mm. if you can give them a home, there's I think there'll be a tremendous response. But the flip side of that is, and this is what I certainly saw, especially in um, um, in the uh, the White House um, role, um, that there are a lot of sort of moderate Christians um, and believers of all faiths, but I'm focusing specifically on Christians here um, for a reason who Barack Obama spent a lot of time working with partnering with doing a lot for, and not in a transactional way, but you know, whether it's um, sort of the language and messaging that, that sort of focus in that direction in 2008, um, the, the work of the white house faith-based initiative, you know, your tremendous work on trafficking and so forth. But when it came down to it, when you had to put your name out there or your support out there or your political giving out there, they were not willing to take that risk on Barack Obama. And as a result, and this is the flip side, I think all of us who want Democrats to do more with the faith community have to keep in mind, as a result, Democrats defaulted to who their friends were in a a crunch, right? In a pinch, the ones who are going to be there knocking on doors and giving and endorsing and supporting, Mm. you know, the thing about sort of moderate civil, you know, constructive Christians who want to see a better tone, they want to see a better tone, but they don't necessarily want to sacrifice anything to to see it. Right. And (laughs) and you have to put your name on the line. So if you see, for example, if you are, here's a practical example. If you have a diversity of views on key issues you know, for example, maybe you have deep moral concerns about abortion, but you also really, really care about the poor. You may not even want abortion restricted, but you want uh, candidates to acknowledge the moral components of it and work to reduce the number of abortions in our country while supporting women. And if you see a candidate on the Democratic side that speaks in that direction and don't say anything, support, give, what hmm. have you, then you create no feedback mechanism for that candidate or others to do that even more, right? Like you, you, they, right. they will default to who, who, who's going to be there for them in a pinch. They're, you know, core supporters. And this is the same thing on the Republican side. You know, um, people, people trend towards the polar ends of the spectrum and candidates repeal to those ends of the spectrum because those folks speak out and they, they vote <laughs> And they give. And if and, and if you want to see more civility and if you want to see more compromise, then we have to create political incentives for civility and compromise. And so that would be the message more for the faith community. But Democrats still need to, to do this outreach no matter what. 
Yeah, Joshua, I heard you in an interview once, and I know it was kind of a joke, but I liked the idea of it. You proposed a civility pack, <laughs> which which I just thought was such a great idea. You Michael, know, if we make enough money these... one day, you and I can co-found the civility pack and give to people who who you know make common sense and know what they're talking about. So, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Joshua, can't thank you enough, not just for, uh, not even principally for being on the podcast, but for sharing your knowledge, for the contribution and just the partnership that we've had over, you know, over a decade and for your contribution to the public and the the work that you do every day would urge folks. uh, Joshua, where would you like folks to to find you and reach you and and be in touch and learn more about you? Yeah, always feel free to just, you know, ping me on Twitter at Joshua Dubois. Um, And man, this has been a joy and a pleasure. And, you know, it's, I don't, I'm not overstating it when I say it, but there is really no one writing and thinking and leading at this intersection like you, Michael. I I mean it when I say these days between kids and business and so forth, I don't have time for as much thinking in this space as, as I would like. And so it's helpful that I'm able to pick up my cues from you. And I know a lot of Americans are are saying the same. So thank, thank you for, for leading and for your courage in this space. And man, let's book round two soon. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if it wasn't for you, I'd maybe have the same ideas, but I'd be uh, probably in my in my mom's basement in Buffalo, New York. (laughs) (laughs) Buffalo needs more productive citizens, though. So I don't know if that would be all. It'd be bad for the country, but not bad for Buffalo. (laughs) uh, As you know, know, we definitely need a more productive football team. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, listen, as 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 a a fan of the Washington football team that shall not be named, um, that's a whole that's a conversation for round two of this podcast (laughs) all right joshua thanks so much for being with us Well, that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joshua Dubois as much as I did. Again, you could reach Joshua at Joshua Dubois on Twitter, read his book, The Presence Devotional. You could check out his company's values, partnerships, and gauge at getgage.com. Again, thank you, Joshua, for that time and that wisdom. Folks, 2008 is the high watermark. It showed what is possible for Democrats, not just, well, when they're firing on all cylinders when it comes to faith, but also 2008 just brought about a series of historical circumstances that opened up the opportunity for Barack Obama to do what he did. And so it was such a confluence of events and people, but there are lessons to to extract for 2020. We're going to do that as this podcast goes on. And uh, as I've said before, our hope is that these historical episodes kind of provide us with a, a shared vocabulary as we discuss how the 2020 candidates are dealing with faith. All right, folks, uh, we only have one more historical episode left. Uh, we're going to be talking about 2012, President Obama's reelect. And we're going to talk about 2016, which, you know, no one's really talked about before. It's going to be covering brand new territory uh, because that election, you know, really just no one paid attention. Right. (laughs) Because I hear this is a major theme right here. But two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians 317. That's the whole ballgame where the spirit of the Lord, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And it's so representative of what's taken place. But actually, 
there wasn't enough attention paid to faith, certainly not during the election, maybe after. And so we're going to break that down. Until then, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. Can't wait until next episode. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Learn more about the Ann Campaign by visiting annecampaign.org. Our producer for the show is Bo York. Our guest this week was Joshua Dubois, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. Look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020.